Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Thank you. If you would turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. And while you're turning there, let me tell you what a joy it is to be here at Southeastern Seminary. Uh, It does not surprise me that Southeastern is named one of the best schools in the country. Uh, I can see that every single day as I see the students and the alums that you have uh, all over the country. And also because over the the past uh, 10 years or so under Dr. Aiken's leadership and under your faculty's leadership, Southeastern has single-handedly put back together two things in evangelicalism that should never be separated, and that's theology and mission. And so when I think of Southeastern Seminary, I think always of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul who has deep theology, a deep theology that is flowing into a passion for the nations and an active mission that also is filled with joy. And so that's what I think of when I think of Southeastern, and it is, a, it is a great joy for me to be here with you all. Mark chapter 12, let's start reading with verse 18 and read on down through verse 27. Mark 12, 18 through 27, and since this is the Word of God breathed out by the Holy Spirit, would you stand with me in reverence for the Word of our Christ? And the Holy Spirit says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray together. Lord, would you bless your word today? Lord, would you use your word by your spirit to shape us and to conform us into the image of Christ? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know how many of y'all are serving in, on church staffs while you're in seminary. Uh, that's one of the things I did when I was going through my, my MDiv years, serving as a youth pastor at a congregation. And one of the things that I found early on was that there was a funeral home down the road that would sometimes call me and say, would you come and, and officiate at funerals for people who didn't have a church, didn't have a pastor? 
And so I was really young, really green, never done funerals before, trying to learn how to do that. And one of the earliest funerals, and it still sticks with me consistently, happened when I was standing in the foyer of the funeral home for a man who had died, and I could see inside the funeral home his wife and his children standing around the casket and was standing back there with this man's pallbearers. We were about to go in, and one of the pallbearers looked in and said, well, bless their hearts, they're better off because he was the meanest man I ever knew. And all of the other pallbearers said, mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, if at your funeral, your pallbearers conclude that you are the meanest person that you ever know, the closest friends they could find of you, then you have really led a hard life. But that wasn't what impressed me. What impressed me was after we walked into the funeral home, knowing all of this background about this man, how many people would stand up and say, he's not suffering anymore, he's in the presence of Jesus, he's, he's in heaven now, he's a good man who's going to, has gone on to his good reward. And they were speaking in all of these, these ways. And I was expecting to hear some sort of thief on the cross kind of conversion or some sort of uh, language about the difficulties that he had had in being sanctified. But what I was hearing from the people gathered around me was not even any pretense at the gospel. It was just that what they were saying about this man is what was expected to be said. And so to say, he's with Jesus now, he's in heaven now, he's not suffering now, was the exact same sort of thing as, call me if you need anything, or doesn't he look natural if you pass by the casket? What else are you going to say? And so you fill it in with this kind of vague, generic spirituality, and you use Jesus as a means to an end. What struck me at that funeral and at many funerals like it is not so much that I didn't quite believe what they were saying as much as it was that I don't think they believed what they were saying. There, there was no genuine conviction that this is someone who is now in the presence of Christ. It was just the thing to do and the thing to say. Now, across the world, across North America, whether you're in a place that is thoroughly Christianized in some way or other, or whether you're in a place that's very distant from Christianity, the same principle tends to apply. People tend to, at certain key moments in life, want to use some form of spirituality or use some form of religion or use some form of transcendence in order to meet some need, in order to comfort a family, in order to mark a wedding, in order to unify people together in times of, of crisis. And one of the most dangerous things that you will find as you go out into your ministries is that there are many people who assume that that is all that the Christian gospel is. That the Christian gospel is just the reflexive way 
that we are able to communicate things are going to be all right. Christian gospel is a stand in for something else. It's about accomplishing some other goal. Now, the reason that that is so dangerous is because that is not, in fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a matter of fact, this is something that Jesus is confronting repeatedly in the gospels, including in this passage that we just read some moments ago. This continues here a pattern. Jesus is having these arguments back and forth with the religious leaders. He's had some of them who've come up and they've asked him the question, by what authority are you saying and doing the things that you're doing? What they're doing is not really trying to get information. They're not really wanting to have a seminar on Christology here. They're wanting to try to trap him. Then the Pharisees come up and say to him, should we pay taxes to Caesar or should we not pay taxes to Caesar? Again, they're not trying to get a legitimate answer out of him. They're trying to trap him. They're, they're trying to make a point about politics in that case. What, what they want to do is to get Jesus either to say, yes, let's give taxes to Caesar, and then to say, I am part of Caesar's government. I'm in favor of the occupation of our people by those who are outside of the people of God, or for Jesus to say, do not pay taxes to Caesar and to be an insurrectionist. Jesus doesn't fall for that. The Sadducees now come up to Jesus and they have a different question, but with the same goal. They come up and give him this ridiculous scenario of a woman who has been married and then her husband dies without a child and then she follows the, the law, the Mosaic law that says she is to marry the brother and then he dies and then she works through seven brothers without ever uh, having a child. And they say, in the resurrection, whose wife will she turn out to be? Now, the reason they're asking this question is, of course, because they don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in a bodily resurrection. They believe only in the five books of Moses, and they believe that the point of a life is to live a good life before God, live a life of obedience before God, and to leave behind offspring who will carry on your legacy. But there is no resurrection from the dead in their view. And so what they want to do is to get Jesus to say something that will make him look ridiculous. So if Jesus says, well, I think in the resurrection, she's married to all of them, then Jesus is giving this absurd view of a woman with a harem full of husbands that everyone would have said, that's, that's crazy. Or if Jesus comes in and says, well, she's married to the first one, then somehow he's dismissing that there are real marriages going on with the others. They're trying to trap him here. They're trying in this cynical way of speaking in order to have a religious discussion and a theological discussion that is not really a theological discussion at all. 
The discussion instead is about what tribe are you in? Who's going to gain power over one another in this conversation? What most conversations in American culture are actually about? Most of the arguments that you will face in your communities really have almost nothing to do with what the arguing is about. The arguments are really more about other things. Who am I going to identify myself with? What kind of a person do I want to see myself as? How can I point to the others as being bad or being other? This is what's happening here. They want to use this religious conversation in order to further the points that they want to make against the Pharisees, the points that they want to make in favor of Rome and in favor of the temple and in order to discredit the teaching of Jesus. Jesus will not do that though. Notice what Jesus does. Jesus turns around and says, your problem is that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. Now this is critically important for every single person in this room. You're probably not going to find somebody who's going to ask you what happens to a woman with seven zombie husbands. Although you might. But you are going to find in every single place that you go a sense of cynicism that Christianity isn't really about something that is true and real. Christianity is just about gaining power over people, or Christianity is just about reassuring people as they go out into death. Jesus, though, is speaking of something quite different. You do not know the Scriptures, and you do not know the power of God. Let's look at those two things. First of all, the Scriptures. Jesus here points to the books of Moses. He he points to the books that they accept, and he comes in and says to them, even on the basis of the books that you receive as Scripture, you are mistaken. You all listen to Moses. You all accept the words of Moses. And Moses doesn't say what you think he says. Because he says, notice the way that God identifies himself when he appears to Moses in the bush. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, this would seem to be something that you just read over. Doesn't seem to be that significant of a statement, especially because, well, yeah, we've all read Genesis. We know who Abraham is. We know who Isaac is. We know who Jacob is. Jesus's point is, by the time God says this, these were three dead men. God is not, he says, the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Why would God identify himself with skeletons? Why would God name himself in terms of the past when you have a God who is consistently saying, I am the one who is bringing to you a future? 
He says, if God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, then there must not be an end to the stories of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. You are ignorant, he says, of the scriptures. Jesus here is pointing to and reaffirming here the authority of the scriptures and pointing to a careful immersion in the scriptures that ought to shape and form your intuitions to where you would immediately know, well, it can't be, can't be that death is the end of everything because I've been here in Exodus. I've been here at the burning bush. I've heard the testimony that God has given and it it doesn't fit. One of the things that I noticed doing theological education for years and years and years is that often there would be students who would come into my classes who sometimes would know Greek and Hebrew really, really well, could diagram Greek and Hebrew sentences perfectly, or students who knew systematic theology really, really well, and who could come in and tell you what Karl Barth had to say about this, and what Wolfhart Pannenberg had to say about that, and what Charles Hodge had to say about this, and could go through every single doctrine of Scripture others who were really wise in terms of leadership and who knew how to preach and who knew how to organize and knew how to plant. And sometimes these people could do all of those things and knew all of those things, but didn't know the difference between Josiah and Jehoiakim and who didn't know the actual narrative and story of the Scripture. And somehow that would seem to be something that's secondary. I can always just search through on my phone, on my Bible app, and find whatever passage of Scripture that I need. That is not the way, though, that Jesus uses the Bible. Jesus here is growing in wisdom and in knowledge, the Scripture says. He is somebody who is shaped and formed in his humanity by the scripture in such a way that he is able to immediately recognize something that is outside of the shape of scripture. So when the devil comes to him in the wilderness and says, turn these stones into bread, Jesus knows where he has seen this before and immediately turns back to Deuteronomy chapter eight, when God says to Israel, I made you to hunger so that you might know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He knows here the encounter of Moses with the burning bush, not simply in terms of being able to argue for the transcendence of God or the imminence of God or to be able to talk about leadership tips from Exodus. He knows this in order to say, 
God here is tying together the story that he is telling in such a way that it ought to shape and form the way that we understand the world around us. And to be ignorant of that is to be ignorant of God. Now, that is a really difficult task when you're living in a culture with such short attention spans that it's very difficult even to find yourself very long in the pages of Scripture. Instead, what we rely on is kind of Scripture as meme. Take a Scripture and I use that Scripture, which is one of the reasons why Jeremiah 29, 11, I have a future for you and a hope for you is hanging on walls all over this country of people who could not find the book of Jeremiah in their Bibles with a thumbtack. But why? Because that passage alone speaks to something that somebody already holds whether or not they believe in God at all. Jesus here is speaking from the authority of God and says, if you understand the scripture, if you understand how the scripture all fits together, then you're going to understand that God is not the God of the dead. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not just examples for you. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are your brothers in Christ. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are part of the great cloud of witnesses that is still alive, still awaiting resurrection from the dead. God still has a future for them, and if God has a future for them, God has a future for you. You are ignorant and mistaken of the Scriptures. But notice the second part, and of, he says, the power of of God. You are ignorant of the power of God. And he says something that tends to confuse a lot of people when they read it. He says, what you don't understand here is that when they rise from the dead, verse 20, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. There are many people who, to be honest, when they read this pastor scripture are kind of disappointed depending on how good their marriage is, they're married. When I was a teenager, there was a girl, I still remember sitting on a, on a van. We were on our way to a youth evangelism conference and we were in the kind of church that really, it seems like only talked about two things, biblical prophecy and how that applied to whatever was going on in the news right now, and sexual purity. And so she said, you know, I hate to say it. I want Jesus to return, but I hope that I'm able to have had sex before Jesus returns, just to know what this is like. Hope I've been able to have my honeymoon and have sex. And kind of the thought balloons of all of those teenage boys in the van, something along the lines of, I, I think I would like to help her make it through the apocalypse, you know. <laughs> and since I grew up 
to study eschatology. I don't even want to psychoanalyze all of that. But the mentality that she had was kind of weird to say, but really not all that unusual. There are all sorts of us who, if we're dead level honest about it, tend to think that there are some things in our lives that when we pass through the valley of the shadow of death, we are losing those things and we do not want to lose those things. We're, we're, we're often kind of subliminally doing to Jesus exactly what his disciples did when they came up and said, Master, we've left everything for you. We can't say that, but we can say, we're going to leave all of these really important things for you. Jesus, though, when he says they do not marry nor are they given in marriage, what is Jesus doing? He is saying you have an assumption that the life that you've been created for is just the same life that you are living now except going on forever and ever and ever. He uses that, that kind of language, marrying and giving in marriage, that he uses when he talks about the, the second coming. He says, as in the days of Noah, they are marrying and they are giving in marriage. What's the point? The point is that everything's normal. You don't get shocked when you get a wedding announcement. You might be shocked that this particular groom and bride are getting married to one another, but you're not shocked that there's a wedding. Weddings go on year in and year out. Anniversaries go on year in and year out. That's the normal pattern of life. And Jesus knows that the assumption behind their question, what Moses had put in the law, if the husband dies and there is no offspring, then the brother should marry her. Why? So that there would be offspring from that household and offspring from that tribe what is the point and what is the purpose of that law? It's Romans chapter 9, so that through them would come the Christ who is the God above all, blessed forever. Jesus says, you don't see the point. You don't understand what God is doing here. Christ is the goal of all of this generational ordering. Christ is the goal of all of these things. He says, you assume that the very best blessings that you can have right now is really kind of as good as it gets, you just multiply it out. And he says, that's not, that's not what the life to come is. He says, they are not marrying or given in marriage. They are as the angels in heaven. Now, again, that confuses us because we don't understand angels. If we're truthful, when we hear something like that, we assume kind of boring. People who just show up kind of cuddly, kind of sweet, chubby cheeks, playing harps, standing around. That is not what angels do in the story of scripture. Most of what angels do, you and I have no clue about. God doesn't even reveal it. 
He simply says there are principalities and there are powers. There's an entire order here that we only get a little glimpse of and a little hint of when Gabriel is speaking to Mary or when Michael is spoken of in Daniel. What is the purpose of the angels in heaven? The purpose of the angels in heaven, Hebrews chapter 1, is to serve as ministering spirits, as to be those who are on a mission. As a matter of fact, the life of these angelic beings so often in Scripture is so far from the boring, placid view that we have that when an angel speaks to Daniel, he says, I got here as soon as I could, I've been fighting. It is a life that is filled with mission. Jesus says, the life that God has for you is not simply holding on to whatever blessings that you have right now and hoarding those things forever. The blessings that you have right now are to point you to a reality that is even more blessed than that and a preparation and training wheels for something that is even better than that at the resurrection from the dead. Now, here's why that's important. You look at this and you say, man, Seems like Jesus is minimizing marriage. And we don't want to minimize marriage, especially when we're living in a time when so many people are dismissing marriage and they're avoiding marriage. What I would suggest to you is what Jesus is doing here is the key to flourishing marriage. The problem in our culture is not that we have too low a view of marriage. It's that we have too high a view of marriage that then leads to too low of a view of marriage. The man who's, who's lived through his parents' divorce and says, I wanna make sure that that doesn't happen to me. And so he avoids marrying and moves through all of these cohabiting relationships. What's his problem? His problem is that he's got this idealized view of marriage and anything that is not perfect like that means that he's going to have to have an escape route from it. The woman who finds herself being drawn into an adulterous affair, usually, that is not because she has too low of a view of marriage. It's because she has this high view of marriage where the person that I'm looking for has to be the person who's going to be my complete and perfect soulmate, who's going to meet every one of my needs, for whom everything is going to be this blissful heavenly experience all the time. And this life right now of taking out the garbage, this life right now of dealing with these rebellious kids, and this life right now with him snoring, just doesn't meet all of those things. So she wants to find somebody who will. What she's looking for is not actually a marriage. What she's looking for is a heaven, and she will never find it there. 
when we see and understand that all of the blessings in our life, whether it's our marriage, whether it's our children, whether it's our ministries, whether or not it's our callings, whether or not it's all of it is all about preparing us for a future that God has for us that we cannot even imagine, then that gives me the freedom to say, because my marriage does not have to be complete and total idealized perfection all the time, I can pour myself out in self-sacrifice, keeping my marriage vows and loving you. The man whose wife has Alzheimer's disease and who doesn't even recognize him, who stands by her side, is able to do this because he knows that he is not missing anything. He knows that he does not have this short little window of time after which there's nothing. He knows that God put me here and God put me here to prepare me for the life that he has for me and I'm going to love her in her sickness and in her weakness and in her vulnerability because he does not see marriage as being everything. He's able to actually be married to the glory of God. The person who understands and knows my ministry is not everything is the person who is actually able to minister. Those of you in this room who tie your whole identity up in how well you preach or what sort of... uh, Uh, ministry you serve in or who you are as a minister of Jesus Christ are going to ultimately hit a wall where you are going to find that you don't even know who you are anymore. The idealized, perfect ministry that you have will then lead you to being unable to minister. But if you go out into the world saying, God has given me the privilege to preach and to teach and to counsel his word, and God can take that away from me at any point. There is nothing that they can do, for, do to me out there on that mission field because everything right now is kindergarten, preparation for something else. That gives you the freedom to actually then be able to minister without constantly wondering, what am I missing? Who's got a better ministry than I have? Who's got something else going on that I ought to have? What am I missing out on here? You understand the power of God that is moving you not toward a list of your accomplishments in your obituary, but is moving you through the obituary and to the life that he has for you. How do you know that? You know that because you hear his voice saying it to you in the word of God. We know the scriptures 
and we know the power of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the men and women in this room, for the callings that you have on their lives. Lord, there are some of them in this room right now who are hurting. There are some of them in this room right now who are anxious because they don't know what it is that you're calling them to. They don't know what it is that you have for them in ministry. Lord, I just pray that you would give them freedom. Lord, I pray that you would give them the peace that comes with knowing that you have a plan and a purpose for them. Lord, would you make us the people who are able to steep in the scriptures and make us the people who are able to see our real future and give us the freedom that comes with that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.